When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the fun things about the aquarium hobby is that we always have the opportunity to find out new things about, I don't know, existing ideas, practices, and even fishes. There are certain fishes which we have almost, I don't know, taken for granted in the hobby, yet which there still seems to be a lot of conflicting information about circulating online and elsewhere. And I sometimes wonder if this is because there's that whole regurgitation thing going on. You know, a lot of well-intentioned information aggregating about an aquarium topic from individuals with little or no personal experience with an idea, a technique, a piece of equipment, a plant, a coral, or a fish. Perhaps this has led us to become, I don't know, weirdly complacent in our understanding of things. As hard as it is to believe, there's still some very common, at least to the hobby, fishes which fall into this sort of gray area where there's misunderstandings or not necessarily misunderstandings, but things that we don't know and we take for granted, we assume, and uh, they just sort of fall into the into that context in the hobby. Now, one of these fishes is also happens to be my vote for the cutest freshwater fish, the lovable so-called bumblebee goby, Brachiogobius doriae. Because, well, it's it's really small. It's like maybe an inch and a half or what was that about 38 millimeters maximum? And it hops around like a little bee. And it has this little face that's, well, cute. And did I mention it's small? <laughs> it's even placed in a small genus with only about nine occasionally confused members. Actually, not occasionally confused. Pretty much always confused. And that's where we kind of start today. The real irony is that the fish which we in the hobby refer to as the bumblebee goby is Brachiogobius doriae. However, the books always seem to illustrate and talk about the similar but exceedingly rare Brachiogobius xanthazonus. It's super easy to be confused about these fish. The collective bumblebee goby moniker doesn't help. <laughs> and uh, it's really tough to, to, you know, to get uh, the proper idea on these fishes. Now, don't feel bad. It's not just hobbyists who are making a confused mess of this stuff. Gobi Taxonomy is apparently, as a, uh, a taxonomy student I reached out for, for for this piece, told me, a Category 5 shitstorm. <laughs> so love the honesty of college kids, right? Now, one of the things I love about this fish is that it's one that we have a completely preconceived notion about. And the, quote, bumblebee goby is like the poster child for brackish water aquariums, little brackish water aquariums, which is cool, right? And yeah, it is found in brackish water environments in places like coastal Southeast Asia, from the Mekong in Thailand to the Mekong Basin in Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam. It's found in Malaysia, uh, Sarawak, you know, Singapore, Indonesia, and Kalimantan, Borneo, and Brunei. Now, there is one species Brachygobius xanthomelis, which is from every source I can access, a true freshwater specialist, not believed to inhabit brackish water habitats at all. And then there's the confusing and similar Brachygobius sabanus, which looks almost exactly like Brachygobius doriae. 
and is found in both brackish and freshwater habitats. And yeah, I actually think that I've kept this species before, having been simply and exasperatingly called bumblebee goby at the retailer, and of course me getting the fish and not realizing it. Now, according to one source I found, the two species are super similar in appearance and are easily confused with the primary visual difference to us, not to ecologists that are doing you know scale counts or whatever, but the primary difference to us is that B. Dorier, um, in B. Dorier, the, the majority of the first dorsal fin, these fishes have two little dorsal fins, so the majority of the first dorsal fin and about, I don't know, about two-thirds of the pectoral fin are black. In Sabanas, the last ray or so of the first dorsal fin are clear, and just a small percentage of the pectoral fin is black. Confused yet? <laughs> yeah, try to determine that on a one-inch fish in an established aquarium. I kind of understand why we're used, you know, the common name to describe all of these little fishes now. Oh, and supposedly uh, Brachiogobius sabanus is much smaller than Brachiogobius doriae. Okay, but seriously, they're both tiny ass fish, so whatever. I'm pretty sure that in the fish in my brackish water tank is uh, sabanus, but I'm not 100% certain. Not that I'm easily confused or anything like that, but if you ever try to, you know, look at the scales and stuff like that it's probably easier to figure it out but looking at the dorsal fin and a little fish in a big tank is kind of hard now the real cool thing about our little friends uh, you know dorier or savannas or whatever the hell they are is that they may be found not only in you know regular clear water freshwater habitats but soft acidic freshwater like those tannin stained peat swamps that we've talked about before now, in these peat swamps, they surprisingly tend to be found in waters that are more mildly acidic, like 6.8 and up. But nonetheless, this is an extraordinary range for a fish that's been long ago typecast by the aquarium trade as primarily a brackish water fish, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. Now, most aquarium available populations of these fishes tend to come from pure freshwater or, if we're lucky, brackish. The problem is that we as hobbyists are at the mercy of our suppliers to advise us where they came from. And once you identify what species you actually have, if that's your thing, careful acclimation to your water conditions, whatever those might be, is absolutely essential. Like a lot of small gobies, they tend not to tolerate wildly fluctuating environmental conditions. Well, even though they're found in a broad variety of environments, they don't like conditions that swing. I've kept them in brackish, which is, you know, specific gravity of like 1.03 to 1.010 with a little tint and perhaps a slight turbidity to it. I've done it that way. I've kept them that way for many years with great success. And I've even had two instances of them laying eggs. Now, our concept of the botanical style brackish water aquarium is pretty much a perfect fit for these little guys, in my opinion, assuming you carefully acclimate them to your conditions, of course. And being a little fish that tends to hop around on the substrate it's not a bad idea to learn more about the substrate and the localities where these fishes are found, right? So I did a little digging in the available scientific information on these fishes and their common habitats, and I found that the locations in which they are found tend to have fairly specific types of materials in the substrate. So that makes sense. Um, you know, there's a, you know, they're found in a specific habitat, so you'd expect a certain type of substrate, right? Well, the substrate itself is typically muddy, sandy, silty, and it's kind of interspersed with leaves, driftwood, and yeah, mangrove roots in brackish areas. Oh, did you hear that leaves part? Yeah, well, it's kind of what I was thinking, right? I love the mud part. That's a theme that we've been talking about over and over and over again here in the tent, haven't we? Yes. And I've always kept these little guys in community settings. That is a community of their own species like a group of 10 to 20 specimens. Now, I suppose this big community approach uh, 
is a bit unorthodox in aquarium hobby practice. However, uh, if you want to see their most natural behaviors, this is the best way, in my opinion. They remind me very much of marine jawfishes, in which there are definite social hierarchies and territorial boundaries and all that kind of stuff. Now, you don't need a huge aquarium to keep them in. But wouldn't it be cool to keep a big bunch of these tiny guys in, say, I don't know, a 40 or 50-gallon tank? Well, yeah, of course it is, especially if it's set up correctly. And that's a proportionately huge tank for some tiny-ass little fishes. But trust me, it's the ultimate stage for these guys. Of course, whatever you do, careful acclimation and quarantine of newly received bumblebee gobies is really important because they're little fishes and are often half-starved upon arrival at the local fish store. They do need ample time and attention in order to recover and acclimate to captivity healthily. And the way you set up the tank, the way it's escaped, is so important to facilitating their health, their happiness, and their interesting behaviors. This is where not just relying on aquarium references is important. Look on sites like fishbase.org, look in Google Scholar, and see the section on, on fishbase especially. There's a section called occurrences where you can find on a lot of fishes. Not on this one, unfortunately. But if you research the, that, that area called, called occurrences, you'll find that it actually is a breakdown of where the specimens used in the descriptions are found. And, of course, when you map that out and do a little research on the local areas, you can find out a lot about them. So do a little bit of a deep dive once in a while. You can find out all kinds of interesting details and in the ecologies of the areas in which they're found in nature. This could be a big help to you. The importance of setting up an aquarium with a variety of, you know, little micro niches like, you know, empty shells and branches, palm fronds, leaf litter and botanical accumulations, mangrove roots, you know, even some rocks can't be overstated. Not only does it look cool aesthetically, duh, but it facilitates those social behaviors, provides food sources, foraging areas, and yes, even spawning areas. Now, having decomposing leaf litter and sedimented substrates provides the opportunity for these little guys to forage among, which is really important because it's sometimes a bit of a challenge to get them to feed on prepared foods. Now, I found, however, that they will typically acclimate to frozen and live brine shrimp and even Daphnia over time. The botanical-style aquarium gives you that additional edge, providing supplemental food sources, as we've discussed many, many times here. As I've mentioned already, it's great to keep these guys in a group. The larger, the better, in my opinion. This is why a decent-sized aquarium makes the most sense to me. Now, one of the things we've learned over the decades is that just because you're small doesn't mean you can't be a bit of a jerk. And these guys are no exception. You'll occasionally get a dominant male that's such a, I don't know, an asshole that he pretty much can be the top dog of this domain of tiny friends, making life sometimes miserable for them. And you need to watch this behavior and occasionally intervene to make sure it doesn't get out of hand. And it can, believe me. Seeing two three-quarter inch fishes going at it is only partially funny when one of them just gets the shit kicked out of them. It happens like that a lot. Again, that's the value, in my opinion, of using a much larger aquarium than you'd think that you need for a fish like that. Super important point. Perhaps my favorite aspect of these fishes is that many of them are truly brackish water fishes, or at least brackish water friendly, and are truly worthy of their own tank. Now, a group of these little small endearing fishes can be as exciting as any of the larger, flashier fishes which we associate with brackish tanks, you know, scats and archer fish and stuff like that. The fishes which many of us don't simply don't have a big enough tank to devote to, to to keep them properly. And since we have a way better way to do brackish, in my opinion, we can leverage this ability with a better understanding of the habitats from which these guys come from. And you can create really, really amazing displays for them. 
if you dedicate a little space to them. Totally worth it. Totally worth it. Now, the frequent frustration many hobbyists encounter when they embark on brackish water aquariums is a distinct lack of readily available information on the fishes and on their habitats. And of course, there's a significant challenge to source some of the fishes in the first place. And indeed, it's often a matter of discerning which fishes indeed do come from brackish water habitats as opposed to just, you know, tolerant of salt. As we start looking closer and closer at brackish water aquariums, we start looking more and more closely at the fishes that we can use in our brackish water aquariums, right? Now, this piece was not intended to be a landmark groundbreaking expose on a pretty well-known fish. However, I wanted to get you thinking about some of the fishes that you've already heard of, perhaps even taken for granted, while looking at them in a context of the type of environments that we talk about with these botanical-style aquariums, especially the brackish ones. Of course, as we look at some of the more common and rare fishes that are perfect for what we're doing, the bumblebee goby, whatever species you might have, is one of our enduring yet surprising faves for a lot of good reasons. Should you keep this fish? Well, sure, if you're up to the idea of really setting up the correct conditions for the species that you have. They're simply not a super easy fish that you can just pop into any old tank. They require a little bit of care, observation, and the right circumstances. They're not difficult either, but you need to understand your fish and the habitat from which they come from in order to be really successful with them, in my opinion. We're thinking of lots of cool ideas to help keep these fishes, you know, healthy and happy for a long time, and no doubt you have many of your own. So be sure to share because that's part of the fun. Stay excited, stay creative, stay slightly salty, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.